I told the court that I'm wrong to imprison. Mr. Simpson, you, you are know. not going to the jury. There's too much being hid from you. You have to be taken out of the court. There's too much. He was one small man in a giant wheel caught. Well, I do wish to say that it's official that I'm wrongfully imprisoned right now. Uncover, Season 7, Dead Wrong. I asked him if he killed Pipple. He said yes, and I'd be next. Available on CBC Listen and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. My Twitter was hacked, hacked my email. Within the email, they changed the phone number. It's not just one thing. They can try to go get passports. They can try to get identities. It's very frustrating for the folks who have to remediate. And we are all targets. A social media hijacking and the bad actors who enable it. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... Families of hostages take action. Tens of thousands of people joined us. Demands for urgency for those held by Hamas. In search of elderly mice. We have to study aging physiology. Why one lab wants older mice to study causes of dementia. And the last repair shop goes to the Oscars. I think it's the people in the film that make them special. How a doc about fixing instruments affirms the awesome power of music. All today on Day 6, the Restrung and Ready to Bow edition. When something like this happens, it's not just one thing. You eventually have to change your entire digital identity. And I've done that. I have literally changed everything. Emails, phone numbers, email servers, my bank information, everything has changed. Susan Delacorte is a national columnist with the Toronto Star. She covers federal politics, including the career of late Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who we will hear more about later in the show. You have probably heard and seen Susan on the CBC. It's fair to say she has a higher than normal public profile in Canada. And about two weeks ago, her Twitter X account was hacked. I'm just going to call it really, really annoying. Someone she dubbed Fake Susan took over her account and wrote some pretty juvenile tweets. But more seriously, they hacked into almost all facets of her life. Her personal email, her banking information. They tried to make some pretty big purchases online. And when the real Susan went looking for help from Twitter X, she says they weren't very helpful. And the invasion of her privacy and personal information also put her safety at risk. It raises questions about the platform she once hoped would be a democratizing force. Susan Delacorte, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Brent. Last I checked, your Twitter X account was deleted. Do you know what's happening with your account today? Uh, I'm afraid to go in there and check, but I I believe it's still suspended. I've just... um, since it started, I think it was family day uh, a couple of weeks ago. I have not been on Twitter. But you found out that you were hacked because Twitter X sent you an email. So you knew that something bad was afoot. But when you tried to prevent someone from accessing your account, what happened? I had to prove it was me and to prove that I was being impersonated. And I couldn't because I, d- I don't want to give future hackers any tips on this, but um, what hackers do is try to change your all the identifying features of your account. Mm-hmm. So making it impossible to tell Twitter, no, that's not me, because fake me had already tried to establish itself. 
The onus was on you as the person trying to regain your account to prove who you were as opposed to the hacker who was pretending to be you. They didn't have to prove that they that they were you. Exactly right. At one point, Twitter asked me to take a picture of my driver's license and send it to them. And I thought, I don't even know that this is you, Twitter, anymore. Like right. the way that they, they're asking you to authenticate yourself seems to be part of the problem. I I really did learn through this that you need to get a human being on the phone. Mm -hmm. This idea of trying to electronically validate and authenticate yourself is just, it's not a good idea. But this hacker was really looking for some financial gain from taking over your account. And as a result, you had to go around and put out some fires yes. with people that were that, that were trying to sell him stuff or people he's trying to buy stuff off of. So how many times have you had to prove your identity this week? Oh, I've lost count. I've, I've totally lost count. Um, yes, the uh, the hacker tried to buy a $16,000 Rolex, also tried to uh, buy a necklace, $600 necklace, did get into my Aeroplan account and um, buy some gift certificates and uh, various other things. It ordered Uber Eats at one point, and then complained about the food. <laughs> uh, so Uber has a record of me complaining about food somewhere in Texas at a burger joint in Texas. So you wrote about this for the start, and, and the headline of your article says, this experience taught you who had your back and who didn't. Exactly. Let's start with who didn't. Who didn't? Twitter. Uh, definitely. As a cautionary tale to everybody out there, if you're dealing with some online merchant or who doesn't have a way, a support line, a phone, it's very, very difficult. I think anybody who's ordered Uber knows this. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been in situations too where you make a mistake on the order and you can't reach Uber. Mm -hmm. It is very frustrating if they don't have a, a paid support line. For a short while while this was happening, a third Twitter X user was communicating with the hacker and providing them with your personal information, like where you live. And that account, apparently, it was an account from Ottawa, apparently. Mm -hmm. That account's now been deleted. But how did that make you feel about the community and the health of the environment on Twitter X? So, yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this because I think two kind of hacks were going on there. Um, well, there was the initial hacker. And I am a journalist. I'm a political journalist uh, who doesn't appeal to all political types, let's say. And so I, I don't think that, I, I know the hacker didn't know who I was. So I, I woke up in the middle of the night and I see 16 messages. I was still able to see on my email direct messages that were being sent back and forth. Right. Actually, only fourth. I could see what this person in Ottawa, he was explaining to the hacker who said he wasn't Canadian, but the person in Ottawa says, oh, you're not Canadian. She writes for one of the bigger papers in Canada. She uh, is on TV. Uh, can you try to get her direct messages? And then he jokes, for legal purposes, I'm just joking that I said that. And what, okay, so somebody was trying to maybe find out who your sources are. Somebody was right. somebody with an interest in exposing this or in using that information. But what does that tell you about the community or the the sense of collegial responsibility that people have when they interact on this forum? Well, I think we've all been writing and talking about how 
Twitter has made politics toxic or helped to make the atmosphere more toxic. And I think this was shining proof that it's not only toxic and I, and I worry that there are people out there who think anything goes, you know, that uh, if, if, if somebody could hitchhike on an illegal act to intimidate a journalist, that was fine. That I found disturbing. We talked a little earlier about who did not have your back when this happened, but, but who did? Well, my employer, I will say, shout out to my bosses, um, my bank. Everybody, you know, hates the banks these days. I would say the bank was, it was an unbelievably helpful experience. Mm. Um, any uh, aeroplan, any of the, the big companies that everybody likes to vilify right now were really, really good at this. They did, they took it very seriously and shut down things. Even they, they were helping me lock down things that I didn't even know I needed to lock down. But but were you surprised that a breach on Twitter, which is you know a, a social media site for communications, could result in such long tentacles going into the various you know, aspects of your private life? Uh, it it is sort of amazing. Yeah, I think I think the hacker got into my email as well, because at one point uh, someone wrote me a letter, a note to say I was being impersonated, and the hacker put that up as well. You wrote, you wrote that when Twitter X first emerged, you saw it as a place for political discourse and you hoped it would be a democratizing force for good. How do you see it now? I, I see it as the opposite. I definitely see it as something that is not helping democracy, but making things worse. It's, um, as I wrote, I grew up in a small town. And when you grow up in a small town, I don't know if you did, Brent, but uh, it's, it, you have a feeling, you're aware that privacy is hard to keep. A lot of people know your own business. And so you just talk to people to their face the same way you talked about them behind their back because things are going to get around to you. Right. I really thought Twitter was going to be like that, that the more readers talked to me and the more politicians and journalists spoke back and forth, we all understood each other, it would make it a community. And now I think it's a small town in the Stephen King kind of way mm. of small towns yeah. with just this ugly underbelly of toxicity. I, I have no other word for it. It's just a toxic place. It sounds like you're, you're not going to return to Twitter X, even if you do get your account back. I don't think I'll be back. No, I'm, I still do think it's possible for Twitter to be useful. It's still useful for getting a heads up on news and things like that. I've gone two weeks now without it and haven't really missed it. Uh, if I went back, it would not be to interact with anybody out there anymore either. I, and uh, and I'm, I'm really worried about people who are spending too much time on it. It shows. Susan Delacourt, the real one. Thank you very <laughs> much for being with us. Thanks, Real Brent. Susan Delacourt is a national columnist with the Toronto Star. always tried to do what I thought would be right for Canada in the long term, not what could be politically popular in the short term. Former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney died this week. He was 84, and he left a long political legacy. Free trade, the GST, opposition to apartheid, back-to-back -back majority governments. But for environmental scientists, 
there's something else too. So I would summarize the Montreal Protocol as one of the most effective pieces of legislation ever. It was a global regulation that was designed to regulate ozone-depleting substances and successfully did so. Cora Young is a chemistry professor at York University. The Montreal Protocol on Substances that Deplete the Ozone Layer was adopted in 1987. It set the course for the world to stop manufacturing and using chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs. Those chemicals were burning a hole in the Earth's ozone layer. Over time, the Montreal Protocol has helped undo some of that damage, and Brian Mulroney was instrumental in bringing the United States on board and getting the protocol adapted. A lot of people don't remember the Montreal Protocol and the context, so when I'm telling my students about it, I have to contextualize it because, yeah, a lot of them don't even realize that that stratospheric ozone depletion was such a big concern. It was a global concern, and it was causing many, many problems, and that there was a global emphasis on solving this problem. It's being called an unprecedented display of international cooperation to protect the world's environment. The Montreal Protocol, signed today, aims at stopping the deterioration of the ozone layer in the atmosphere. That's the layer which shields us from damaging ultraviolet radiation from the sun. So the initial agreement was basically to phase out the use of these ozone-depleting substances. And for many applications, we had to replace them with other chemicals. Obviously, we can't get rid of refrigerators and air conditioners, so we had to come up with substitutes. And so these were gradually phased in. Ozone-depleting substances are used in lots of different commercial applications. A major one is they are used as refrigerants and heat transfer fluids, so you find them in your air conditioners and your fridges. They're also used in things that weren't necessarily so essential, like propellants in deodorants and hairspray. And so those are obviously much easier to, to stop using than, you know, our refrigerators. We were really afraid that these ozone-depleting substances, which can catalyze ozone destruction, so you know, a single ozone-depleting substance can destroy many, many, many molecules of ozone. We were worried that our, our use of these commercial products that are ozone-depleting substances would result in the destruction of the entire ozone layer, which has major implications for human health. The, the ozone layer protects us from the sun's harmful rays, and without it, we'll be burned. Before this was an issue, people didn't have to worry so much about wearing sunscreen all the time. And that's really a more modern phenomenon that, that sunscreen is even necessary. The Montreal Protocol uh, regulated ozone-depleting substances, basically stopping their production. And we're seeing this in the atmosphere now. We see that their, their concentrations are plateauing or decreasing. And this effect has taken a long time because these chemicals live for a long time in the environment. So we stopped making them in the early 1990s, but it's taking until now for us to actually start seeing a decrease in the environment. The Montreal Protocol improves the odds in the risky game the world has been playing with its own future. When the Montreal Protocol was being negotiated, I was I was a kid. I was in school learning about environmental issues and just the scope of, of these problems and what was needed to solve them really inspired me. And that's that's what brought me to a career in environmental science. 
Another really powerful aspect of the Montreal Protocol is its ability to uh, respond to new scientific information, whether that's increasing the phase out of different chemicals or adding new chemicals that we realize are problematic. And that's actually what my work focuses on, is some of these new chemicals that are being added to the Montreal Protocol to continue improving the environment. We've had just huge success with the Montreal Protocol. It's repaired the stratospheric ozone layer or led to its repair and is the most successful climate legislation to date because these ozone depleting substances are also greenhouse gases. The world we avoided is grim. It's a very good thing that we were able to uh, to negotiate and, and implement this, this protocol. It's It saved our environment for sure. It shows the potential that we have as a global society to make legislation that benefits everyone. And I hope that this is something we can continue to do. And certainly we have lots of global problems where we need to come together and do a better job. And I think we can use this as a point of inspiration. Cora Young is the Guy Warwick Rogers Chair in Chemistry at York University. Still to come on Day 6, the Final Fantasy reboot is a major event in the gaming world. The latest installment is out, but should you play it? Just bigger and bolder than any of the games that came before it. My name is Gil Dickman. I'm 31 years old from Tel Aviv. My cousin, Carmel Gat, is still held captive, kidnapped in Gaza for more than 140 days now. This week, families of the Israeli hostages being held in Gaza staged a four-day march calling for their loved ones to be brought home. They set out from the site of the Supernova Music Festival near where Hamas-led fighters began their attacks on October 7th. About 1,200 people were killed that day and 250 others were kidnapped. 112 hostages have been freed since then. It's not known how many of the remaining hostages have died or been killed in captivity. Gil Dickman is with the group Hostages and Missing Families Forum, which came together less than 24 hours after the attack. We asked him to tell us about this week's march and the ongoing struggle to bring the hostages home. On October 7th, the terrorists broke into the house of my uncle and aunt in Kibbutz Be'eri. They first took my aunt Kineret and murdered her a few minutes after. Then they took my cousin Carmel Gat, and she's still held captive in Gaza. Uh, she was supposed to be released on the eighth day of the ceasefire, but the deal collapsed and the war just continued. And since then, we don't really know whether Carmel is dead or alive. Is she okay? Where she is? Where she's held? We know she uh, was alive on the 50th day. Two hostages who were with her told us that she was okay, that she was with them the whole time. But we don't really know what happened to her. This week, we started marching all the hostage families together with other Israelis who joined us from the border with Gaza towards Jerusalem to show the Israeli government and the Israeli public that we're all united in saying that we want the hostages to come back home, that that is the most important purpose. Before the last deal, the November deal, 
we had a similar march from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and tens of thousands of people joined us. That was very powerful. Uh, it was one of the key things that drove the deal last time. We really hope that's why we decided to go on this march to show the whole world that the hostages must come home right now. And we now know that some Israeli politicians, mainly Itamar Ben-Gvir and his very extremist party, Otsma Yehudit, um, they actually started a campaign saying that the deal is bad, getting hostages back is bad, maybe because of the, of the price that Israel has to pay. When we check public opinion polls, we see an amazing consensus that sees the hostages issue as the most important thing on the table, that it should be number one on the priorities of the Israeli government and of this war. We know that soldiers that went out to fight, they feel the same way. They feel that the hostages is the most important thing. And we know that we must do whatever we can to show the Israeli politicians that that's what the Israeli public wants in order to make sure that all the hostages are home as quickly as possible before it's too late. I don't care for revenge. I don't seek blood on the other side. I don't want to see more and more war in this horrible cycle of violence. And that means getting the hostages back home and putting an end to this horrible tragedy. Gil Dickman is with the Israeli group Hostages and Missing Families Forum. His cousin, Carmel Gatt, is believed to be alive and held captive in Gaza. For years, Dawn Bowdish has been working to better understand the link between respiratory infections in elderly people and dementia. She's made some encouraging progress, but over time it became clear to her that one of the things standing in her way was the mice used in clinical trials. They're almost always young and healthy, and that's a problem if the human population you want to apply your findings to is not. So she began building a mouse ICU, and now she's been awarded a $750,000 grant to use older mice to study the specific link between respiratory infections and dementia in older humans. Don Bowdish is a professor of medicine and the Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity at McMaster University. Don, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thanks so much for having me, Brent. How old is an old mouse? <laughs> it's at least two years old. And most people use young mice, which are about six to eight weeks. So you can imagine having a room full of old mice is a bit of a different experience. <laughs> well, your work is specifically about how older people who are hospitalized for a serious respiratory infection puts them at a high risk for dementia. Mm -hmm. What do we know about that link between respiratory infections in older people hospital stays, and dementia. There's been so many studies over the past two decades saying that if you get sick enough to be hospitalized with a respiratory infection, could be influenza, could be a bacterial pneumonia, and quite likely COVID, you are at higher risk of developing a lot of problematic things, and dementia is one of them. But we actually have no idea why that is. We know that you go to the hospital, 
an older adult is more likely to have a really, really strong inflammatory response to that pathogen, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And we know that they take a long time to get that inflammation back down. And many people never get it back down to normal levels. We also know that dementia is associated with having too much inflammation. And so we hypothesize that older adults aren't able to clear that inflammation they sort of live with higher levels of inflammation that pushes them over the edge to developing dementia. But in truth, without most models, we don't really have strong proof that that's the case. But now you have this idea of a geriatric mouse ICU. Mm-hmm. When did you first come up with it? Because it sounds kind of wild. <laughs> it does sound wild. I have this vision that your listeners are all imagining my staff with uh, ER masks on, you know, giving them CPR and things like that. Right. It's been over 10 years in the making, to be honest. So when I first joined McMaster, I was young, I was naive. And as one of my directors said, I clearly had more money than sense because I said, If we're going to study older adults, we have to study aging physiology. The old immune system is not the same as the young immune system. The old lung is not the same as the young, and the old brain isn't the same as the young. And one of our early experiments showed that some of the assumptions people made about how pneumonia works based on experiments in young mice just didn't apply to old mice at all. Mm -hmm. And so that to me was totally gratifying because it really spoke to the need to use the right animal model that mimics the age of the people that you hope to improve or serve. But it's taken a while to convince people because the scientific community sometimes can be slow to change. And I think one of the things that's really allowed us to get this funding is all of a sudden we've had this incredibly terrible few years of so many older adults being in the hospital. And so there's never been a better time to try to break that cycle between serious infections and dementia. You, you need to replicate the conditions of the ICU in the hospital where older people are developing dementia. In, in terms of the model, does the mouse ICU resemble that in any way? Yeah, in many ways. So I'll give you a sort of walkthrough about what a sick mouse looks like for us. Obviously, they don't naturally acquire pneumonia. We give them the bacteria that causes pneumonia. And then what we do is we wait till they get pretty sick. And we know that if we were just to leave them and do nothing, about 80% of the old mice would die just as if an older adult got pneumonia and had no medical care, they would most likely die. But then what we do is we bring in uh, the intensive care. So uh, mice, for example, need lots of extra support getting their bodies warm. They need nutritional support because they start to lose weight just and muscle just like older adults do. And so we provide them with this sort of additional medical care to nurse them through that infection. And we can get it to about 20, 15 or 20 percent of the old mice will die. But we've nursed them through that infection. And we do the same sort of monitoring you do in a hospital. We look at their breathing rates. We look at um, how active they are. We you know, make decisions about if they're dehydrated and treat that dehydration. So it really is quite similar. Although, of course, the joke in the lab is there's no hallway medicine for our mice. Everyone gets a bed. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you've managed to take an elderly, perhaps demented mouse through the process of recovery, what is it that you've learned? What, what, what is the knowledge then that could be applied in a human case? One of the big things we've learned is that this inflammation does seem to be long lasting and seems to affect the brain immune cells. Hmm. So generally your brain and your blood, there's like a hard wall between the two right. and very little passes between the blood and the brain. 
And yet there's some communication that's happening there that means that even a month or two after they've survived this infection, we're still seeing a lot of brain inflammation. And brain inflammation is associated with really poor cognition. Mm -hmm. The other really exciting thing for me is we, we uh, started being able to test treatments. So our vision is that we get the mice through this difficult time, just like that you would get through your ICU stay at the hospital. And then we treat with drugs that either stop this inflammation, maybe reverse some of the aging immune system, and then we test for their cognition and behavior again. And in our first preliminary experiment, we were so excited to see a really big improvement because if we can have a drug, a treatment, we can actually start offering hope for people. Well, what are the challenges that you faced in finding older mice? <laughs> Money. So <laughs> I think your uh, your listeners will be horrified to understand how costly a research mouse is. One young mouse is about $45 a mouse, right. shockingly. Now, an old mouse, because we have to keep them for two years, we have health checks, we have feeding, we have technical staff who keep them healthy. Now we're talking about $325 a mouse. Hmm. So, and because we age them here, if there's any lack of continuity in our funding, you know, I always say the number of old mice I have today reflects how much money I had two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's definitely been the hugest challenge, uh, just holding on for hope and prayers when, when grant funding was, was tight. But now this, this $750,000 grant, you think you're going to be able to keep many old mice available for a longer period of time. Absolutely. And the other thing I'm really excited about is keeping really wonderful trained people. We have a new PhD student on the project who's decided it's now her life's work to study uh, infections and cognition in older adults, which makes me happy. We have um, a wonderful technician who's really worked to train and build this. And then we have a team of other researchers and investigators. So we built a team in addition to building a model. And I'm really proud about that. You mentioned the COVID epidemic and how many older people were hospitalized during that period. And our population is aging as well. How important, how urgent is it to learn more about dementia right now? Oh, so urgent. I mean, if you reflect on the people you love or yourself, what is the thing that is scariest to you about getting old? And I'm going to, I'm going to guess dementia is right up there. And actually keeping up to date with your vaccines is one way to, to reduce that risk. COVID is still the number one cause of hospitalization of people over 50. We need to really have some treatments to, to stop a tsunami, a second tsunami of dementia or other cognitive issues, which we're just not prepared for as a society. Don Bowdish, thank you very much for being with us. Good luck. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Don Bowdish is a professor of medicine and the Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity at McMaster University. Still to come on day six, fixing broken instruments and understanding how music can change a life. We meet the directors of The Last Repair Shop. It's just sort of the stuff that dreams are made of, really. Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyedin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're also available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. 
I'm back now, Aerith. I'm back. That's right. Final Fantasy VII is back. Rebirth dropped this week. It's the second part of a remake of the beloved 1997 game. As you might know, the setting is an expansive fantasy cyberpunk universe. An evil corporation called Shinra is draining the planet of its life force. And it's up to you as the character Cloud to save it. The planet runs out of energy. It and everything on it dies. We can overcome our fate. Day 6's gaming whiz Jonathan Orr has spent 77 hours playing Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. He's here to tell us if it lives up to the hype. John, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Brent. Why was the original Final Fantasy VII such a huge deal? Well, Final Fantasy VII came out on the Sony PlayStation in 1997. It was the first like big-budget 3D role-playing game, just bigger and bolder than any of the games that came before it. It had a really complex storyline, so like a potentially unreliable narrator, um, a major character death, which wasn't reversible. Um, and, and, and I notice you're not revealing who the character is right now because it's a 25-year-old spoiler that you don't want to Look, we're go gonna be there. Just, we're going to be talking about a 27-year-old video game. Like, <laughs> okay. We'll have to deal with it, right? Uh, what about for you personally? As a preteen gamer at the time, what did it mean for you? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't the Shakespeare buff at the time. It was the first time I encountered things like that. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really big moment that for me signified that video games could be a, a really powerful storytelling medium in ways that film and TV couldn't, which is not to say it's better. It's just really – this was not just Mario bopping on Goombas. It's a landmark for, for its time. So now what are fans paying attention to with the remake? So we're trying to learn more about the world that we only kind of briefly played in the original game. Rebirth takes a stretch that was about 15 hours and – balloons it into a, a game that's maybe 40 hours to all, all the way up to 100 hours in length. Mm -hmm. So there's new characters, new storylines. But the big thing is that this game ends at a, a place called the Forgotten Capital, mm -hmm. which is where one of your main characters named Aerith, she dies in the original. She is murdered in very brutal fashion. The flippant way to say is like a character in a video game dies and she doesn't have another life. Um, fans had speculated for years on whether or not there was a secret code to really bring her back. <sighs> so like people really cared about her. And now part one of the remake suggested that maybe this is a retelling, but maybe this is a new version of mm -hmm. the story. Maybe things are going to be changed. So there's a lot of like multiverse, multi-timeline things going on here. And, you know, people like the question about this game is like what happens to Aerith? Okay, so in, in terms of capturing these complex characters and the storylines of the original, does Rebirth compare favorably? I would say overall, yeah. Like the game itself is just a huge expansion. You're spending way more hours with these characters that you only had like a little bit of time with in the original. I love what they did with Barrett. He's like your big like enforcer dude. He suffered a lot under the Shinra regime. He literally lost his hand and he has replaced his hand with a gun. So in, in Rebirth, he's really grappling with what it means, like what are the consequences of taking part in what in his mind is a justified resistance but also a violent one mm. and what are the implications on the loved ones around him. Oh. There's so some also, moral complexity there. Yeah, in ways that you know we're only really addressing a couple lines in the original. And what about the game playing itself, John? How does that compare to the original and still live up to the standards of 2024? Yeah, in, in a lot of weird ways, it is kind of cribbing from the last 10, 15 years of video game design, right? Like the original game had a world map where you are going to different cities. It's kind of like looking at a board game or like a map and moving like your pieces around. 
now the world has been expanded to an open world much like you know an assassin's creed game a grand theft auto game you are traversing huge expanses of grasslands and mountains and deserts and you are doing missions much like you would do in other video games you were climbing towers to gather data you were doing side missions for you know fairly random minor characters so some critics found that the game playing felt uh, it, it it took away from 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 what you're really trying to do in saving the planet. Yeah, I mean, like it it suffers from the classic open world game problem where your main character is on a major world saving quest, but then you're stopping off to farm, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know, is that really what we're supposed to be doing? I don't really mind it in the game. They kind of justify it as like, okay, you're you're basically mercenaries. You need to make some money just to travel. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So that kind of works. Um, but also, if you really just wanted to mainline the main story and ignore all of the side content, you could basically do that. Let's talk about the ending. I know you can't reveal what happens at the end, but how satisfied were you with the way it comes together? Oh, man. Um, I will say that a creative director of this game, Tetsuya Nomura, he worked on the Kingdom Hearts series in the past, and his works have had a bit of a reputation of convoluted storytelling where there are multiple worlds, multiple timelines, a strange editing style where people come out of it trying to figure out what happened. And that is a factor in the ending of Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. I found myself a little bewildered. It will be divisive is all I can truly say. But in the end, I found that the time I spent with these characters was so meaningful and tugging at your at the brain and the heart's nostalgia that I could forgive the strange ending and really enjoy the time I had with these characters and the world. It sounds like you had a deep emotional reaction to it. Yeah, I I am grown up to admit that I cried a lot during parts of this game. <laughs> um, there were certain moments that evoke very specific moments or lines from the original that are magnified with the high-budget reproduction of it in a, in a new generation remade video game that when the thing was happening, I literally gasped and in ways that I didn't expect. Like there are a lot of things you do expect. Like are they going to hit that note? Are they going to say that thing? And they, they, usually they do say that thing. But every once in a while, they flip it and turn the script in ways that were really surprising and ways that I just – brilliant. I could say brilliant. Um, other twists, maybe not so much, that will probably fuel message board arguments for another four years or so. But overall, yeah, it was definitely quite an experience. So far, it sounds great. Is there anywhere where the game falls short? There are a few places, yeah. Some of the problems are technical. Like the camera seems a little bit too close to Cloud as you're walking around. So like it gets really confused if there happens to be like a tree or a fence behind you. You spend a lot of time exploring the game on a chocobo, which is like a large chicken horse kind of thing. And for whatever reason, when you're traveling on your chocobo and your entire team is on chocobos, the camera is like just staring right at the chocobo's butt. So <laughs> it gets in the way. And I had a hard time moving the camera around to see where I was going. Right. So, I mean, like, you know, it's it's a minor technical problem that persists, which is going to be a little bit annoying. The other thing is that the game kind of turns up the drama and melodrama in a lot of scenes where I feel like the original might have had more smaller scale quiet moments. Like Rebirth really has to 
almost justify itself in scope and budget and drama. And sometimes I feel like the game just kind of never stops going when in the original version it was able to let certain moments breathe and you don't you don't see that as much. And I feel that in certain specific moments that really makes this, the storyline or the situations falter. John, Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, should I play it? Yes, there's a lot to play here for fans of the genre, but also for newcomers because the main characters are just great. Cloud is a fun character. The rest of the cast are super entertaining. Honestly, for fans of Final Fantasy, this it's not even a question. You have to know. You have to see what happens. I will note, though, that this is very much a part two of a trilogy. Right. This is The Empire Strikes Back. If you haven't played Final Fantasy VII Remake from 2020, you should start there first. But once you're done with that, then jump into Rebirth because it is ready for you. John Orr, thank you very much. Thanks, Prince. Jonathan Orr is a senior writer with CBC Radio Digital and Day 6 is gaming expert. When I'm feeling tense, when I'm feeling sad or angry, the saxophone... calms me down. But the G-sharp key always gets stuck. You can't have a sax with a broken G-sharp key. And luckily, she won't have to put up with that for long. Los Angeles is one of the few remaining cities in the United States that provides free musical instruments to public school students. So kids who might not otherwise be able to afford a tuba, very, very expensive, or a guitar or a saxophone can still access the instruments. And those instruments can change a child's life. But sometimes they break and the students need them fixed quickly. So in a nondescript warehouse in L.A., a small group of people with remarkable stories work to repair those instruments, more than 80,000 of them in all. Their stories are told in The Last Repair Shop, a short documentary that's nominated for an Oscar. It's directed by Halifax's own Ben Proudfoot and by Chris Bowers, a Juilliard-trained piano player, composer, and filmmaker who graduated from the L.A. Public School Music Program. Chris, good morning, and Ben, welcome back. Thank you so much, Brent. Yeah, good morning. Ben, this is your third Oscar nomination in four years, and you won in, in 2022 for the Queen of Basketball. Both you and Chris have two of those nominations together. So let me ask, what's your secret? Chris Bowers. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, the only thing, the, the common thread other than Chris is we put a lot of love into these films. And I also think that all three of them are highlighting people who we believed deserve more credit than they had gotten in their lives. And mm. um, I think that's that's a big reason why the Academy and the documentary branch of the Academy have recognized these stories because, you know, unlike best director or best actor, Chris and I aren't the nominees. The film itself is nominated. And I think it's the people in the film that make them special. Well, there's some amazing storytelling going on, and some of it comes from the characters that you're bringing us. Some of it comes from the way that you frame these characters. The shots in the film are gorgeous. But Chris, underneath there is your music as they tell the story of how music has changed their lives. 
you graduated from the Los Angeles public school system. You benefited from this program that loans instruments to students. What did that program mean to you? That's right. Yeah, I um, relied on on the instruments that I played from the time I was, you know, really, really young all the way through the end of high school. And I spent any free time that I had in music rooms and playing piano and middle school, I played saxophone for a short while. Um, but, you know, for me, it was a place to work through a lot of um, the aspects of, of young life. I think that there are so many times where I had some sort of emotion that was difficult for me to articulate or, or navigate verbally with anyone. And mm. I could go to the piano and play through those emotions. And so it it meant so much for me to have access to those instruments and for those instruments to be in good condition, because if they weren't, that also adds to this potentially negative feedback loop. And so for those instruments to always be in great condition, um, it was something that I really relied on. And I never thought about how that happened until uh, Ben told me about this repair shop. And I never really considered how those things were kept in such great condition for um, you know my entire childhood. And for the people who work in the repair shop, the music and their relationship to those instruments is something that's central to their emotional lives as, as well. And, and that's what makes the whole thing so compelling. Ben, when we've talked to you in the past, you said that you get a lot of your film ideas from this kind of voice of, of intuition that whispers in your ear. And I'm guessing that this time around it was a little bit different, but how was the idea for this film born? Yeah, the, the voice uh, of intuition that whispered in my ear this time belonged to Jeremy Lambert. Uh, our producer, and he basically came across this article. It was about 10 years old about the repair shop. And he brought it to me. He said, this is cool. And it's here in LA. And I just said, wow, you know, the North Pole of musical instruments. And we've got the last one here in LA. Isn't that amazing? Mm. I just, I wanted to see it and I wanted to hear it. And I wanted to know what it was all about. And I went to Chris and I said, you went to LAUSD, didn't you? Did, did you know about this shop? And Chris said, no. And we both kind of looked deeper into it. And um, I went down there and I, I had interviewed the only four craftspeople who were willing to talk to me. <laughs> and those are the four people that you meet in the movie, which is kind of unbelievable considering that they, all four of them have such extraordinary stories. What are the odds, Chris, in finding four people with such amazing stories in one small space? You know, I think that um, Ben and I really do believe that every individual has an amazing story. Like, um, I think the thing that I'm, I'm blown away by is, um, one, their willingness to be that open about some of the things that they've had to move through and navigated. Mm. And the fact that these stories were each so unique and touched, you know, different aspects of experiences in this country that, uh, are, are quite universal, you know, and I think that that's the thing that we really, in addition to these stories being so moving and so emotional and, and then being willing to share those stories, I also feel so thankful that um, we happened upon these stories that each of them are uh, completely different than the other. And, and that's uh, really special. I see this documentary in, in two parts. This is how I experience it. There's, there's the stories of the kids and the repair people and the role that music plays in their lives. But then it culminates in this joyful community of performers at the end, and this magnificent performance of a wonderful piece of music.
How did you decide to do it that way, Ben? Well, it wasn't that way to begin with. We actually, when we submitted the film to Telluride Film Festival, it was just a normal white text on black credit roll at the end. And we had always heard and talked about, you know, it'd be great to see the kids perform. It'd be great to see a, some kind of big finale. And we had talked about different things, you know. And so Chris and I put our heads together and we started calling people that we knew who could help us. And the first call was to Peter Rotter, who's actually the gentleman that introduced us almost 10 years ago, who's an amazing music contractor. And he's the one who hires musicians to play on scores. Hmm. He's like one of the best in, in the world. And uh, we explained our, our vision for this sort of big multi-generational orchestra entirely comprised of uh, LAUSD students and alumni. And there was sort of a pause on the phone. And he said, OK, yeah, let's pick a date. <laughs> um, and what was amazing in that whole process was just how many people donated their time. I mean, these are highly, highly skilled people who play on, you know, Star Wars and whatever. And they just they were so moved by what the project was about that they came and did it for free. And believe it or not, the whole thing came together in just a few weeks. Chris wrote that incredible piece of music and just really a few days before the deadline, um, they played the music that what you're hearing on uh, in the movie is them playing it for the first or second time. Um, and so it was a chaotic confluence of magic and gifts from the documentary gods that brought that all together. I wondered about that performance. Chris, what's it like for you when you bring in a score and give it to the musicians and you're hearing it played by that large ensemble for the first time? Yeah, you know, it's something that, that never gets old and, and also is so special about this city in particular. You know, you know, like Ben said, the first or second time they're playing it, yeah. it's filled with this emotion as if they've been playing it for years. And so to hear this piece of music that meant so much to us in terms of celebrating what this whole movie is about and celebrating this uh, group of people and, and everyone coming together um, and for them to play it with that energy and, and really immediately get that that's what this is uh, supposed to feel like in this piece of music was so um, def definitely got, gave, gave me chills listening to it. What did you want that piece of music to say when you were composing it? You know, for the beginning, it's just a celebration, right? Like we have that single note that Porsche is holding and, and then immediately just erupts in this, this uh, climactic, um, exciting, thrilling orchestration and, and sound. And, you know, I think for us, it was just, um, wanting to have it feel immediately like this burst of energy. Um, and then it goes through each of the technicians' musical themes. And so it was fun to, you know, be able to feature Dwayne on a, a, a piece of music that he actually wrote and incorporate his uh, melody into uh, his theme from the score. Uh, and then that ending with Steve's theme, having this like sweeping uh, emotional kind of melody. I think a lot of it was just trying to capture the, the range of emotions that we felt in the entire film. Ben, let's go back to the beginning of the film when you profile the people at the repair shop. It's so intimate. It's so personal. Are those people, are those four individuals ready for the kind of spotlight that comes with an Oscar nomination? Oh, they're ready. They're tying their bow ties and uh, picking out their dresses and whatnot. I mean, I, I don't think they ever could have expected it or imagined it. And, and frankly, neither did we. Um, but we're a great family. This whole, all the people that you see in the movie and all the crew, we've just come together in this joyful thing. It kind of just, 
I don't know how to explain it, but it just feels like something magical has occurred that has bound you together for life, right? It's just together we've created this really special thing that's resonating with people and, and receiving all this attention. And we're able to turn that into a huge amount of positive energy for, you know, students in, that want to play music in LA. We just launched a $15 million capital campaign to help keep the repair shop thriving. Um, it's just sort of the stuff that dreams are made of, really. Well, the joy is there on screen. Thank you very much for sharing it with us. Good luck to you. And thanks again for talking to us. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Chris Bowers and Ben Proudfoot are the directors of The Last Repair Shop, which you can watch online. It's up for an Oscar in the best short documentary category. Rift from the headlines. And here it is, Rift from the headlines. Our weekly quiz, three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. This old dog ain't about to forget All we've had and all that's next Merle Haggard and I'm a good loser. Jessica Bio with world record and Mac DeMarco and this old dog and Jeff Plass of Brandon, Manitoba correctly guessed the headline that we were looking for. Bobby the Portuguese Mastiff is stripped of his world record as the world's oldest dog. I guess he was actually a tortoise dressed as a dog. Jeff, congratulations. A day six tote bag is on its way to you. Now, here's this week's clue. got a theory that it's a demon, a dancing demon. Nah, something isn't right there. I've got a theory, some kid is dreaming, and we're all stuck inside his wacky Broadway nightmare. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. And please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at CBC. Dot CA slash day six. Time, weather, and from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, McKenna Hadley-Burke, Sarah Melton, and Pedro Sanchez. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott, and I'm Brent Bamber. It's four days to Super Tuesday, six days to International Women's Day, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. Thanks, Real Brent. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.